Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. And I'll be reading from the NIV. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the abundance that accompanies your, con- your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. If you are a sports fan like me, this past week has been one of the most exciting weeks of the year. It was baseball opening day. I know the local team here hasn't done too well so far. My Braves are in the same boat. Started off 0-2. Hope that gets a little better. And the college basketball tournament, one of my favorite sporting events of the year. You always find some unexpected outcomes when you watch the college basketball tournament. And there have been some exciting games if you've had a chance to watch any of those. What's interesting about a sport like basketball especially is the best team doesn't always win. Sometimes it's not just the culmination of which team has more skill, which team has more talent overall, which team has the better coach. Those are all factors in it. But when it comes to playing the game itself, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. One of the factors is which team's more motivated to win. Motivation is a real factor in sports especially when you get to playoff sports where your season ends if you don't win the game. Which team is going to want it more, as we may say? The team that is more motivated. When you talk about motivation scripturally, sometimes the Bible comes right out and God will say, this is what you should do just because you should do it. But that's not often what God gives us. Often God will give us a command or he'll at least give us a precedence in showing us what his people have done and what he approves of. But then he will give us a little bit of the why. Why is this important? Sometimes we tell our children, well, just do it because I said so. And when they're at a really young age, sometimes you have to say that. Sometimes they're not going to understand an explanation. 
but sometimes as they get older, I think we should do our best to try to teach them the explanations so they, they will see a little bit of where we're coming from. That, that They will be motivated to do the right thing, not just commanded to do the right thing. Here's why you do the right thing. And I'm convinced that the Bible does that repeatedly. And it mainly does that by grounding the commandments that God gives us and the, the expectations that he has for us by grounding them in the story of what he has done for us. If we can see what we are doing for each other and what our relationship to other Christians and our relationship to the world, our relationship to everyone, is really a participation in God's relationship with us. If we can see that, then we're not just following the rule book and it's not just a collection of, of our talents that is going to, to get us over the hump and be able to accomplish what we want to. It's going to be that we are motivated to participate because it's an opportunity. It's a way of sharing in who God is. When it comes to the matter of giving... I told you last week we were going to spend a couple of weeks on this because there's two chapters in 2 Corinthians that deal with this topic, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's really meant to be read as one entire unit. We read some of it last week. We're reading some more of it this week, focusing some on chapter 9, but we're really going to be focusing on some things from all of these chapters here. Last week we established that giving is an act of fellowship, not only of worship, the idea of offering is associated with it throughout the Bible. It is a one way that we worship God, but it's also a way that we participate in our common fellowship together in the body of Christ. It's a way that we bear each other's burdens. It's a way that we collectively care for the needs of benevolence and evangelism and getting the word out spreading the kingdom and encouraging those who are in the kingdom. This week, as an extension of that, I want you to see how this passage is not only about why giving is such an important part of our fellowship, but Paul, as he's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is also going to get into why. Why we give. Yes, you give because you're connected with others. That's not it. That's not all of it. There is much more going on here. Now, it's interesting when you come to this passage and you say, well, if God wants us to give a certain amount and uh, to regulate when and how and how much uh, that we give and, and what it's, why doesn't he just come out, just, just say that and leave it there? Well, again, you could have that command, but then you wouldn't necessarily be motivated to do it. One of the things you're going to find in this passage is that giving is that the compelling someone to give is not by force. Now, that's something you're going to see in a couple places here. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 8, I am not speaking this. What's he speaking? He's talking about giving, about the taking up of, uh, of each one contributing to this collection that they are taking up. I am not speaking this as a command. Look at chapter 9, verse 7, when he's going to talk about the attitude that we have with giving. One of the things he's going to say is it's not grudgingly or under compulsion. It's another way of expressing it's not by force. Now we could say here that in terms of what we're thinking about and we say, well, why, why not? Well, and he wants to make sure people know this is not a tax 
on them. Does anyone like the word tax? We are painfully finding out, many of us, this time of the year, how much we despise the word tax. We're reminded of it right around this time. We don't like that language because that is something that is a something that we are forced, we are compelled to do. Now, I'm not telling you not to pay your taxes because Jesus says to pay them, okay? But we're not, we're talking about something else here. We're talking about how to really motivate people in God's kingdom to contribute to the needs of that kingdom is not by way of tax. It's not a membership fee either. It reminds me of some of the old Puritan churches here in North America and in New England. They would have a, a fee that you would pay to reserve a pew. Imagine your pew that you have claimed out there. Imagine having to pay a fee to reserve that. So it's almost like going to a concert and trying to get the best seats, the closest possible, or the seats of prominence. And that, that's part of how you would contribute to the church. I don't see that in the scriptures as fitting with 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 at all. We're not taxing you by being here today. That's why when we take up a collection here, we, we don't say if you're going to walk in this door that you have to put money in that collection or you are not welcome here. That's not what we are doing. When you place membership here, I've talked with some people that said they've placed membership in churches before where they, the leaders of that church wanted to see their, their income tax returns. They wanted to see what they were making and, and uh, keep track of that. Now, while I understand the accountability that is there, that doesn't seem to go along with this passage either. We are not in the business of forcing people to give a certain amount. By the way, the amount is never specified in this passage. In fact, I don't find it in the New Testament. You do have more specifications in the Old Testament, some good principles there for us to work with, of the concept of tithing, but that's not something that is repeated in that form in the New Testament. It is more of what we would call a free will offering. It's voluntary. It's not something that is mandated in the form of you must give this amount. It's a free will offering, but having said that, I don't want you, you to walk out of this sermon today thinking, well, we have the license to, to be a member of the church and not to contribute. That's not what Paul is saying in this passage either. What he is trying to do, as he often does when we come back to the idea of motivation, is not just motivating you by saying, well, do this, and that's the end of the story. I take 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 very much similar to what he's going to say in the book of Philemon when he's talking to someone who's, who is a, uh, you know, a, a slave owner at that time. And we don't know exactly how he was treating that slave, but the slave had run away from him. And he could have just said, okay, you need to, uh, you have to accept him back as a brother. In fact, you need to set him free from this uh, relationship. You need to have a more mature relationship than that, the master-slave. If you read that book, Paul doesn't really take those tactics. He, he says, I, he more comes out, and even though that's what he's trying to persuade Philemon to do, he persuades him. He, he does it so saying that, this is the expectation of what Christians should do. 
And there's a difference there. And the same thing comes with this giving. In fact, you're going to see these terms that are used here connected with the giving. Even though it's not by way of command, even though it's not by force, look at some of these terms that are going to show up in your translations. That is that the abundance that is involved with this contribution that is there. The term overflowing, which is really part of the same Greek word, just translated a little bit differently there. It is to be liberal. Okay? It's to be generous. And it's to be even beyond ability. Now, to be fair, in chapter 8, verse 3, he is going to say that some gave according to their ability, even some beyond their ability. When he's talking about how, how well other churches had responded to this particular need. But there's certainly an example that he's setting there, giving us some motivation that, yes, some will be able to give more than others. We talked about that last week. We need to understand that. Some are more capable of contributing more than others. But there is also the principle here that some have even reached beyond their ability. Why would they do that when they're not commanded to? Well, because they see real need and they see their giving as connected with their relationship with God and their relationship with others, with their love of God and their love of neighbor as themselves. Now let's see how that plays out a little bit. Here's your foundational motivation. If Paul's giving a pep talk like a coach giving a pep talk for the big game, if he's giving a pep talk, what he's going to write on the board as the one word for people to focus on when they're getting ready is going to be the word grace. It is the central concept in this passage. It is favor that God has shown us that we have not deserved, that we have not earned, that we in no way have merited, and yet he is, has given it to us. Now that's across the board. That's not just your salvation through Jesus Christ. That is something that is only by God's grace. But it is also everything in your life, your family, the job that you may have, uh, the, the opportunities that you have, of friendships, of relationships with people, of your material possessions, of the very air that you breathe. These are all expressions of the grace of God. Look at how saturated this passage is. I'm just going to read through some of these quickly. Chapter 8, verse 1. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. I can see the coach right here writing that word on the board here, and he's going to keep coming back and pointing to that. That's the central idea of this motivational talk. Begging with us with much urging for the grace of fellowship in the service of the saints. Chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. We urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work. Now there's an interesting concept. Grace connected with work. It means it's not something that you have deserved or merited, but it is something that you are doing, that you are applying what God has given. You are taking his grace and you are pouring that grace into these contributions. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in, in the love we inspired in you, those are all expressions of God's grace. See that you abound in this gracious work also. Talking about the taking up of collected funds and how they will be used for the building up of the kingdom. Later on in chapter 8, verse 19, talking about Titus. Titus has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious 
work. If you look at chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now listen to this part. This is receiving the grace from God so that you can not only just be one who is taking in, but one who is allowing it to flow through you into the lives of others. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so you're receiving it first, so that always having sufficiency in everything, here's where some of that trust comes in, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. You know what that passage has just said? It says that if you really understand the grace of God, then you shouldn't have to be commanded to give. That, that, that grace was coming into your life. If you understand the impact of that, then you should see what you have ultimately as not belonging to you, but belonging to your creator who gave it to you to begin with. And you are there as a steward of it to pass it on into the lives of others. Its purpose is for every good deed. Now that's in acts of service, but also in contributions of service financially. Both can come under that context. Look at this, chapter 9, verse 14. They, being the fellow saints, some who are going to be recipients of what they've given, who are in real need, they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Others will be drawn more to the grace of God when they see you as a gracious person. It's part of how you point people to God. And this is what it's grounded in. If there's a theme verse of the motivation talk here, it's this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I love the hymn that we sing. We don't sing it enough. It's called Out of the Ivory Palaces into a World of Woe. And it talks about how it was the love, the grace of God that motivated our Savior to come down here. He gave up the riches of his place in order to take on the form of a bondservant, according to Philippians chapter 2, in order to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for our behalf. That's the grace of God, and that's the story you get to participate in when you are in Jesus Christ. You become an extension of Jesus Christ to the world around you. There's your motive, and that's why he ends this whole section Coming back to the idea of grace, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You can't put it into words. So grace is at the center of this. Let's talk about a couple other things that are connected here, though. The direction of our giving, like many things when we talk about fellowship, we need to see this as both outward and upward. Now, another way of looking of saying that is both vertical and horizontal. That means toward God and toward others. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with others. We established that when we started talking about fellowship. Both concepts are very important. The vertical fellowship with God becomes the basis for our understanding of fellowship with each other. 
Now here's some verses here in chapter 9 that express this. Watch the two directions that this giving is ultimately going to. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. Okay, that's outward. That's into the fellowship of the Christians around you. That's that's meeting their, their needs. But is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, meaning the others who see this generosity, will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's at least two things going on here just in your relationship with God. When you give to others who are in need, it's a way of showing your love for God. Your love for God, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is most often manifested in your love for your neighbor as yourself. That's most often how we show it. Now, when we gather here together, both of those things are going on. We're loving each other. We're loving God in our worship of him today. That's why this is one of the ways that we worship him. It's connected with offering and many other passages. Is that even though we're not, you know, you know, God doesn't have a bank account in heaven where we are wiring him money that we take up today, okay? He would not need that, obviously. That's a silly uh, concept for us to think about. But if we are truly God's people, then collectively, it becomes his money that we are overseeing. And so whenever we give, it's not just giving to others. It is, in effect, showing thanksgiving to God. It's part of the way that you show thanks to him. It's your willingness to give in our contributions that we collect. Now here's where I want to challenge you a little more. We tend to hold back And often we give what has been left over after we have taken care of other needs. And in effect, we're prioritizing other things whenever we do that. I do think we need to have an understanding of the difference between what is a need and what is maybe more of a want, maybe more of a luxury whenever we are doing our personal budgets. That's one factor here. The other factor is this. Do we really trust God to continue to provide for us? This is where those those fears start coming in and we start becoming very insecure when it comes to, to money. And I realize this is touchy ground. I realize some of you are in very difficult financial circumstances and I don't want to belittle that at all today. But I do ask you to search your heart and see if part of why you may be holding back from giving even more is that you have not fully trusted in the grace of God to continue to provide for you. You may be playing the what if game and you may be playing the what if game of, well, what if the car breaks down. What if we need a new roof within the next couple of years? Well, what if uh, the kids want to go to college and, I've, and we don't have enough to pay for that? Uh, or what if I lose my job? And the what ifs can be endless. If you play that game to its fullest extent, you will never give. You won't. Because there is, you, ultimately you are not trusting. I want to show you some of these passages that, that help establish trust. Do you really trust God here? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, that passage is not just saying, okay, as some televangelists may say when they're trying to solicit your funds, send us your seed gift of 10000 and then you will have 100000 in your bank account within the year. You will see it there. That's not what he's talking about right here. But he is saying that the more you continue to let the grace flow through you, then the more you're going to continue to receive the grace from God and the more you are going to see the reaping, the benefits that come about from giving for you and for others. It will be good for your heart. It will be good for your relationship with God. It will be good for your trust in him. It will be good for the kingdom of God. You will see reaping that will happen. If you sow bountifully, there will be a great harvest. If you sow sparingly, there won't be. That's not just with your money. That's with everything. This is the concept of stewardship. It's the concept of investing in people. Investing in the kingdom. Bountifully is what he's encouraging here. But do you trust God to do that? Here's more of your motivation. Chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything. Now, what's, what's that saying? He's saying that God, trust God to take care of you. Matthew chapter 6. You know, the, the worrying about what we're going to eat, worrying about whether or not we're going to have clothing. If you're, and that's one of the, the benefits of being part of the church, and that, this passage talks about that, is if you give to others who are in need, then when you meet a point in your life whenever you are in need, they have the same attitude, then you're going to be taken care of too. There, there's a trust in God and there's a trust in each other that is part of that. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You receive from God, you let it flow through you into the lives of others, you do so generously, you do so liberally, you are going to be okay. There may be moments whenever you, you doesn't say you're not going to have challenges, doesn't say that you're not going to have financial challenges. It just says that trust God, he is with you and his people are with you. And then chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, come back to this language of sowing if you want to harvest, he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving back to God. Again, outward and upward whenever we give. Now what is that saying? I'm saying if, if, we're, if we're getting this, the seed sown for a harvest uh, that is coming, the more we sow, the more God is going to give to us. You go, you go back to the, the, many of the parables that Jesus tells. To whom much has been given, much is required. That's a principle that's there, but there's another principle that is there. And that is the ones who do invest in the lives of others. You know what? God says, come back and give him even more talent. Because he's someone who is taking what I've given him and he is putting it to good use. He has the same expectation for us. I want to bring in another passage from Jesus himself. Do you trust this promise from Jesus? Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now watch this. Something very common in the teachings of Jesus. He says something similar when it comes to our judging of others. <laughs> By your standard of measure... It will be measured to you in return. Do you expect others to be good to you, to love you, 
Maybe you don't. Maybe you think, well, I'm self-sufficient. I'll be fine. You will need other people in your life. Even if it's not financially, you will need other people. You are not going to get through this life on your own. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Do you trust in that? Do you trust that God will provide for you if you are willing to give? Look at this triangle. I like to describe this as a triangle. You're going to see there three Greek words. kind of summarizes everything that we were talking about today. The words in English are grace, the word joy, and the word thanksgiving. Can you see that root that is there in all of these? They're all related. It's the, it's the C-H-A-R, and we would pronounce that car. Charis, kara, and eucharistia. Now, I, I view that as a triangle because these words are so interrelated in the Scriptures. If we're receiving the grace of God, then it's producing a joy in us. Obviously, if you find something that you didn't know that you had, you rejoice over it. If I realize all that I've been given only because God has looked upon me with favor, not that I've deserved that, then it's going to produce a joy in my life. Now, joy that I just hold on to myself and am not sharing with others is not biblical joy. Remember what Jesus tells us in one of his parables in Luke 15? The woman who found the lost coin, what does she do? She calls others and says, rejoice with me. Joy is something that is to be shared with others. And it is shared in two directions, outward and upward. Joy, as we're receiving grace, turns back into thanksgiving to God. That's why often whenever we, we you may wonder the idea of whenever we say a prayer for the food, some will say, let's say grace. I don't, I don't have a problem with that expression because that is what we're doing. We are, thanksgiving is extending grace back to God. That comes in our words. That comes in our singing, our worship, everything that we're doing today. But it also comes in our giving. We are overflowing with the joy. And the overflow is going outward and it's going upward. And that brings us that joy to what ultimately this passage is getting at. He says, he has said, I don't speak this by way of command, but you do see here at least the language of this is expected as you're maturing as a Christian. I'm not specifying an amount, but if you take an honest look at your budget, at your income, at the needs that you see in the lives of others, and when you look at what the church collectively is going to be doing, as we talked about last week, in evangelism and benevolence, here's the verse that captures what our hearts should be in this. Each one must give as he is purposed in his heart. Purposed. That means that you've put some thought into this. That means that your decision is grounded in your understanding of the grace of God. You've done some reflection on this. This is not, and if any of you have done this today, I'm not trying to step on your toes specifically, but this is not coming in 
and being, oh yeah, it's a Sunday. I should give a little something. What do I have in my wallet today? Well, I've got $5, let me drop that in the plate. Okay, if you've done that today, I'm not trying to get all over you for that. I'm just trying to say you have an opportunity before next week to think that through, to do some planning for this. This is something you need to plan long before a Sunday comes whenever we take up a collection. Just like you need to be preparing for our Lord's Supper together long before the song before the Lord's Supper. We prepare for our worship assembly all week. And part of that preparation is looking, praying, reflecting, using wisdom and understanding the grace of God to purpose what we are going to give to others and ultimately back to God. Purposed in his heart, not grudgingly. Now, if you're used to holding on to things, then this one may be a difficult one for you. There may be a period where you, you have to go through a period where there is, there is a little bit of resistance there in your heart for this. You may have to work through that. But this is the goal of a mature Christian, someone who really understands the grace of God and all that God has poured into your life is that you don't do this grudgingly or under compulsion. We're not forcing you. We're not going to take up everyone's income taxes and, and do the math for you and tell you this is what you have to give. We expect you to do that as you purpose in your heart. And the last line he gives us, the reason for all of this, what does God want from us? For God loves a cheerful giver. A giver who is doing this as an overflow of the joy which comes from the grace of God. My challenge to you is to look at what you have been giving. And I thank you for that. My family personally thanks you for that because some of that does go to support us. Some of the missionaries that we support in other places in the world, thank you for that. Some of the, those who have received some of those funds to help in, in moments of real need, benevolence need in their life, they thank you for that. But let's challenge ourselves to give according to our ability and really challenge yourself to even give beyond your ability, trusting in God that the more you are able to pour into the kingdom, the more the kingdom will reap the benefits and the more you will be able to receive the grace of God continuing to come into your life and then flowing through you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you the thanks today as we want to return your grace to us in our words of thanksgiving right now and our collections that we take up and our singing toward you and all that we do. And we pray that we will be people who, who overflow from what we have received and send it back to you and send it into the lives of others. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your indescribable gift of Jesus Christ and your grace which is grounded in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
today, if you have not received the grace of God, which he is offering to you in relation to your relationship with him, if you realize that you have brokenness in your life, that you have sinned, and the Bible says we all have if we are of an age where we, we know that we have done wrong. And that puts you in a condition where you are apart from, from God. It doesn't mean that you're ever separated from his love, but it means that you have stepped out of that fellowship with him. And you have made a separation there. You've created a barrier there. Now God has reached across that barrier through Jesus Christ to reach into your life and is offering you a chance to be cleansed from the sin a chance to be made whole, a chance to be a part of a family uh, with him and with all of his other people. That happens whenever we accept the grace of God. We respond to it. It's offered free, but we still have to receive it. We have to willingly receive it into our lives, and we do that by expressing, yes, I believe. Yes, I want to confess that I believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Yes, I'm willing to repent, turn from those sins. Yes, I'm willing to be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins, to be joined with him, united with him, to walk in newness of life. If you need to make that decision today or need the prayers of this congregation about anything else, please come as together we stand and as we sing.